So right. I do think that this is the family law, you know, specialized license is a huge leap forward for access to justice. You know, what if it doesn't go through? Mm. <laughs> I'd like to say there will be a revolution <laughs> and, <laughs> and you and I might be at the, at the head of it. Hello, and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. As always, I want to take a second right off the top to encourage our wonderful listeners that if you're enjoying our podcast, go on over to iTunes and leave us a rating. We'd love five stars. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, a Don't do it if you're going to leave us one star. No, no, please don't. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> We're dictating what we... What people should be rating us. <laughs> uh, but if you have a second and you think of it, that would really help us out and we would appreciate it greatly. And then another little bit of housekeeping before we get into the content of today's episode, we have another other news guest correspondent for today. We're really excited that the wonderful Randy Drusen who is a journalist, uh, often does pieces for the CBC. Uh, she is also on our blog steering committee for the project. And incidentally, she is a former self-represented litigant. So she is very well qualified for many reasons to be our other news correspondent for today. So make sure to stay tuned through the end of the episode and hear Randy talk about the other very interesting Access to Justice news stories uh, from the recent past. We really appreciate Randy doing that for us. Thanks, Randy. So let me introduce our guest today, who in fact is a former law student of mine many, many years ago. So many years ago that maybe we won't actually mention how many years ago, <laughs> Lisa Trabuco, who is now an assistant professor at Windsor Law. And Lisa is uh, in academia now, having spent the first 15 years um, of her life as a lawyer in legal practice, practicing mostly civil litigation, intellectual property, and administrative law. And I spoke to her on the day that she had just finished her doctoral dissertation, yeah. which is on the regulation of paralegals in Ontario. Increased access to justice, question mark, obviously something that we have a lot of interest here at NSRLP. Absolutely. Um, so her study is very interesting and very topical. She explored the work of paralegal representatives at the Workplace Safety and Insurance Appeals Tribunal, and she asked whether paralegal regulation has increased access to justice. And she talks about this in the upcoming conversation that you'll hear with Julie. Uh, the data is still weak on how many more people have access to justice as a result of having the additional choice of a paralegal as opposed to a lawyer. But her research does show that outcomes compare mm. very favorably with lawyer representatives. So in other words, uh, paralegals are capable and competent representatives where they have experience and expertise in the area that they are practicing in. Yeah, and as Lisa will explain, they actually score pretty much the same as lawyers. So yeah. that's, that's an interesting thing that she explains in our conversation. Uh, so Lisa's other interests include the legal profession in general, professional regulation and non-lawyer legal service provision, and the regulation of non-lawyers or paralegals in this case. In other words, she studies access to justice. 
So we're thrilled to have Lisa here. And it's a particularly opportune moment to have this conversation with Lisa, because as many listeners will know, the Law Society of Ontario, along, of course, with stories in other provinces, with other law societies, are now once again debating the scope of paralegal practice. And in this time, it's specifically in terms of whether or not paralegals in Ontario will be permitted to do some types of family law work, which, as we know, is the area where we have the greatest number of self-represented litigants who cannot afford access to a lawyer representative. So very important discussion. And just to set out a few pieces of the general framework here, uh, if you're coming into this having not thought as intensely as Lisa and myself and Dana and Moyer and others have about paralegals in the last few years, the starting question here really is whether or not paralegals should simply have their own career path and practice independently like any other professional group or if they should be supervised by a lawyer and act as some sort of legal assistant. And of course, it's that latter definition that has been most prevalent for the longest time, that paralegals were not independent of lawyers. They depended upon lawyers for their supervision and for the kind of work that they would do. So we're starting to gradually see paralegals come out from underneath that supervision and have their own career paths. Although, as Lisa will explain in the podcast, those career paths are now apparently determined by lawyer regulators. So in Ontario, there was a move towards this independent practice model, independent of being supervised by a lawyer. A long time ago now, actually, a former president of the University of Windsor, Ronnie Annie, and a former dean of the law school reported on this in 1990. And Ontario legislated to allow the licensing of paralegals in 2006. And the very beginnings of paralegal licenses were in 2007. So you will hear Lisa refer to the fact that before 2007, people who she describes as non-lawyers, in other words, not lawyers, not what we now call licensed paralegals, could represent people at the Workplace Safety and Insurance Appeals Tribunals. So this tribunal hearing final appeals on benefits, entitlements and healthcare was open to people who did not have a practicing certificate as a lawyer and also were part of what is now paralegal regulation. And that's allowed Lisa to compare what this looked like before 2007 and what it has looked like since 2007 when there have been licensed paralegals in there um, representing people. And the other thing we talk about in the podcast that has become a huge issue now is the scope of practice for licensed paralegals. And as I said, this is something that's being discussed across Canada. And it's not that by regulating paralegals, the Ontario Law Society gave them permission to practice in any area of law they wanted. No, no, no. This has been very incremental. So for example, 2011, they were additionally allowed to practice immigration law. And there have been other sort of small incremental changes but family law has never been part of the scope of practice for licensed paralegals in Ontario um, or in British Columbia, where they are also considering this issue. And currently, there is another consultation underway. And if you're beginning to feel a little deja vu like, that's because, <laughs> yes, there have been previous consultations in Ontario on this point. The last time was after the Boncalo report. 
And the consensus of the law society was no, they were not ready to license paralegals to do family law. So this is a second kick at the can. And we are very hopeful that this is going to be a way that we can now see a path to paralegals being able to offer people more affordable legal help. So we'll say a little bit more about that in our outro. But for now, here's my conversation with Lisa. Well, good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for talking to me this morning. And I want to, first of all, congratulate you having completed your doctoral thesis, which as anyone who's been through that process knows is a marathon and a milestone. And your topic, your research topic, just, you know, casting it really broadly to start with, uh, has been paralegals as legal representatives. And that is a topic that is both uh, extremely topical right at the moment with the Law Society of Ontario looking at the possible regulation of family paralegals, but also very important to many of our listeners. So could you just start by talking about what drew you to this area, why you decided you wanted to invest, you know, your time and energy in looking at paralegals? Sure. Yes. Well, good morning. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, a pleasure to be here. What drew me to this issue particularly, I think, is I worked at, um, at a couple of the colleges teaching in the paralegal program starting in 2008. Right. So just after paralegal regulation was implemented. This began in Ontario, yeah. Yes, and and uh, worked for about eight, nine years in total in paralegal programs at the colleges. And in the midst of that, as students graduated, I started to think about competence. As you know, the Law Society is, uh, imposes very strict educational requirements for the yeah. paralegal program. So it was really the Law Society's agenda that was administered through the colleges. Mm -hmm. But so as, as students would graduate, I, I, I started to wonder, about competence, how competent they were to go out, write the licensing exam, and then deliver legal services independently to the public, in part because of their age, I think, and in part because the program was open to students who had graduated from high school. You know, but I started to wonder what the Law Society's, the Law Society's version of what um, paralegal education was or should be, was it good enough? Because when I started practicing law in the 1990s, the early 90s, I remember then there were these rumblings about paralegals and, mm -hmm. and their role and and you know I didn't I wasn't quite sure what all that was about at it's the time. been a long-running saga <laughs> but it was a long-running saga and of course it all really kind of looped back to the University of Windsor Faculty of Law where I went to school um, because um, Dr. Ianni at the time right. was recently the dean and then the president of of the university and the first um, you know headed the first task force on paralegals right Right. So when, when you say you started thinking about competence, Lisa, I mean, obviously, this is a younger, as you say, younger cohort, because this is post high school, although, you know, interestingly enough, of course, I come from a system in which that's how, when people go to law school as well. I went to law school immediately from high school, because that's how it works in Europe exactly. and Quebec. Yes. So did you have, I'm, I'm sure that knowing you, this wasn't just about age. I mean, what, what was... No the other kind of dimension of competence that you were particularly thinking about when you thought about this research? It was in part, it was knowledge, substantive knowledge. Right. And I thought that a two-year college program was a bit too quick. 
mm. um, to really dive deep into um, not just substantive knowledge, but law in practice. So those other mm. skills as well. Well, there were um, courses on advocacy and uh, tribunal process and, and right. things like that. To me, it just needed to be a little maybe longer, a little deeper. A little um, more hands-on. A little more hands-on. And I think I think a big thing for me in teaching is to instill confidence in students. Yes. And that's a tough one. Um, you know, how do you do that? I think some of that is, as you say, a little bit more hands-on opportunities to gain a little bit of that confidence in terms of their knowledge or their ability. And we, of course, we couldn't have clinics because paralegal students weren't like law students. So there was no authority from the law society for them to actually go out and do right. any of that. Right. And they couldn't they did have that. Also, I think just to clarify for the listeners, Lisa, they don't do articles in the way that we usually have this nine or 10 month period post law school where a law student or a law graduate would then be sort of mentored. And that wasn't part of this career path either at that point. Correct. They just had, a, and I think it's the same now, a four-week uh, yes. field placement, which, as you know, is you know, great, but far, far too short. Very short, yes. right. So you decided you were going to focus on the Workplace Safety and Insurance Appeals Tribunal to do, to do a case study, uh, because, of course, this was one of the areas in which paralegals have been able to represent since the beginning of, of paralegal regulation here in Ontario. And you were particularly interested in how successful the representatives were who were paralegals. Now this, I think this is a, a question that a lot of listeners are gonna find very interesting to hear your answer, because I know that there is a perception out there amongst people who don't have representation that you are less likely to be successful with a paralegal because they're not seen by the adjudicator as important or as credible somehow as a lawyer would be. So what did you discover about how successful the paralegal representatives were at this particular tribunal, which, which is a tribunal that has long had um, you know, a history of, of non-lawyer representation, of course? Yes. Yeah, so just before I answer your question, I just want to emphasize, as you said, that non-lawyers have rep been representatives at this particular tribunal, you know, since it was started in 19, the mid-1980s. Right. And I think non-lawyers in various roles and capacities really have been the majority of representatives. Um, so what I found ultimately, and, and I'll get just to this point, is that non-lawyers are, are, I found, to be certainly successful and capable right. Uh, representatives at this tribunal, but they were before regulation as well as since regulation. Mm. Wieziet had non-lawyer representatives before regulation and right. after, right. and that's in part why I chose that tribunal, because mm. it would give me a before and after right. regulation comparison. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I looked at the uh, outcomes, the appeal outcomes, which essentially are either, you know, successful or not successful, mm. right? So it was easy enough in that sense to ascertain the outcome. And uh, at the group of the groups of non-lawyers who, I looked at their outcomes of the groups of non-lawyers prior to 2007 regulation and since, and the rate of successful outcomes was about the same right. amongst the two groups. And right. I guess secondary to that is that they, that the non-lawyers achieved positive or successful outcomes at about the same rate as lawyers mm -hmm, at that tribunal. Mm -hmm, Again, mm -hmm. both before regulation came in and after. Regulation. Right, right. But that's very important because obviously one of the things that 
is attractive about paralegals when there are people who cannot afford the rate of lawyers is that they are charging their services at a lower hourly rate. So just, just to be clear, Lisa, you found that there wasn't a significant difference between the success rate in terms of outcomes at this particular tribunal between lawyer and paralegal representatives. Correct. That's correct. Right, yes. Right. So does that mean that if, because this is, I suppose, you know, the sort of the simple way of looking at this question, that if there is an expansion of paralegal regulation, in other words, if the Law Society of Ontario decides to allow paralegals to practice family law and even, you know, begins to expand into other areas, does that mean that there will be increased access to justice for people in Ontario because they will have access, if we extrapolate from your study, to people who apparently are as competent in getting good outcomes as lawyers, yet charge less money? Yes, because the way I looked at it, or the way the, I guess, regulation and the government initially looked at it is that in terms of access to justice, we have, you know, the numbers and or choice of representative, right? So we have greater choice if we have paralegals as well as lawyers. Right. Um, I did do a study of the a survey of the, the paralegals at this particular tribunal who do appear to charge quite a bit less than lawyers, but of course, it's hard to get specific data about what lawyers charge mm -hmm. at specific tribunals. Mm -hmm. um, but assuming paralegals charge less, which it is the research, that's what I found in right. my research. Um, but also, I think the competence and the and I think it's the specialization. And I think that's exactly right. what the law society is looking at with the family law, paralegals and family law, right. they're looking at a specialized license, which to me, quite frankly, I don't know why we don't have more of them and why specialized in licenses areas. in various areas, not just yeah. for paralegals, but even particularly for paralegals has not come in sooner. So right. I do think that this is the family law, you know, specialized licenses that huge leap forward for access to justice. But in that case, and I mean, sort of hearkening back to the fact that this has been a long running saga, if this, we know there's an access to justice crisis, we know that many people can't afford lawyers, or at least they cannot afford them in an ongoing sense if there is, if that dispute continues, why then has there been so much tardiness about licensing these other areas of practice for paralegals and and again just you know so the listeners understand we are we are always referring back to the law society as the possible regulator this is not about paralegals regulating themselves this is always a debate that takes place in relation to will the law society which regulates lawyers also be willing to regulate paralegals and, and as we know a few areas have already become part of that so what's the holdup? You know, institutions like the Law Society, I think, are slow to change and mm. reluctant to change. And I think in some ways, you know, this is a this is an entirely new thing, the yes. paralegal regulatory scheme, not just in Canada and the only one still, but also in North America to this extent of independent uh, paralegals providing legal services. And that is, I mean, not under the supervision of lawyers. So I think some of it is a reluctance because it's a bit of, you know, well, we don't quite have the evidence, so we don't know for sure if it's going to work. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not a reason not to try. Well, no, and it's also very frustrating, of course, for people like you and me who do empirical research to hear that we don't have the data to show it would be a good idea when the reason we don't have the data is because we haven't tried it yet when it comes to family paralegals, for example. Um, we can't have data unless we give it a try. The real kind of 
choice piece here seems to be how would they regulate them. And there has been an assumption that they would regulate them in exactly the same way as they regulate lawyers. In other words, they would be subject to a code of practice and so forth, and complaints could be made into the existing law society complaint system. And, and I just want to make that clear for people who are listening, because there is some experience amongst self-represented litigants of trying to use that system. So they are effectively now in charge of both, and would be, in, if the paralegal family, family paralegal piece went through, in charge of regulating the behavior and the conduct of paralegals as well as lawyers, correct? Correct. Right. Yes. Now, do you think that there are any alternatives to that, that the Law Society is the only body that we should be thinking about who would regulate paralegals? I mean, after my research, I'm not convinced that the Law Society is the best regulator. And it's a it's a curious thing because the Law Society was before regulation of paralegals came in for over 200 years, a self-regulator, right. you know, the regulator of lawyers. Right. And so its role kind of expanded, but also to me kind of was compounded uh, in that it became the regulator of self and others. And those others are non-lawyers who also provide legal services. Mm. So to me, there's a little inherent conflict, perhaps a little conflict of interest there, um, I'm not suggesting that the law society is ill will towards others, but I think it's a tough one because for so many reasons, the law society was, I think, a good choice of regulator. Or the obvious choice of regulator. Or, you know, the obvious choice right. at the time. And there was discussion at the time, as you probably know, of, yeah. of different entities, but they just didn't seem to be feasible at the time. But at the same time, what it amounts to uh, is that they are regulating competitors. Absolutely. And what's interesting, as I'm sure you know, Julie, is that when 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 the Law Society Act, the legislation was was revised to accommodate, you know, the implementation of the regulation of paralegals, um, one uh, duty, I guess we could call it, or function of the Law Society that was added at that time in 2006, and it was a duty to facilitate access to justice for the people of Ontario. Yes. Yes. It wasn't there before. Yes. So, you know, that's the tie with access to justice and paralegals. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it wasn't suggesting that only the regulation of paralegals, you know, no, needed to no, but that it would be facilitate access to justice, step. but that law right. society regulation generally yeah. uh, should do so. Let's bring us up to the present time. And I am very conscious that, you know, you and I may need to... Uh, to meet again sometime in the new yes. year if something is, has actually happened. But as, as we know, there is another consultation process currently going on. In fact, today is its last day, uh, today as we're recording this, on family paralegals. And there has been previous effort to do something somewhat similar um, as, as a result of the report of Madam Justice Boncarlo. Uh, in 2016 and then in 2017, that proposal was rejected by the Law Society. Uh, in other words, there was uh, not an acceptance that paralegals should be able to offer family services. And this is a second kick at the can that we're seeing here. And I'm wondering, do you think it's going to be different this time? Do you think that attitudes are changing? Is it more likely we will see an approval this time round? And I suppose if I can just ask you as well, the sort of the doom question, what if not? Well, those are, um, <laughs> that's a double-barreled question. So, yeah. 
Let me just back up very quickly. I do think that, you know, I was quite pleased, obviously, as many were, to see Justice Boncalo's uh, recommendations yes. for family law. And I thought it was a very reasoned, you know, judgment and opinion after her review uh, and research. This time around, um, I've looked, certainly I've read the proposal and I just, I think it's very thorough. It's very detailed. Yes. I'm, I'm very hopeful that it's a huge step forward because I know pra paralegals practicing family law was an issue back before regulation was implemented yes. even in 2007. Yes. Um, what I want to say, one thing about the, the proposal this time with the, uh, the competencies, I think the 200 plus yes. competencies, which you seem very, very well thought out. And I'm quite certain had the input from family lawyers or the family bar. Right, and, and go um, to your original interest in this, which was ensuring competence. For, absolutely. For paralegals, yes. And, and the interesting thing, being a lawyer uh, myself, as you are, um, we have no such competencies for lawyers who practice family law, <laughs> nothing. No, I mean, family law is not a requirement by the Federation of Law Societies of Canada. There's no requirement for courses on domestic abuse mm -hmm. or, you know, the societal and economic impacts of breakdown of the family, any of that. Whereas there would be for paralegals. Whereas there would be for paralegals. Mm -hmm. So quite frankly, when we start to talk about competence of, say, two, one paralegal, one lawyer, both of whom are a year or two or, or, or immediately graduated from their programs and passed the licensing exams, who is better qualified mm. in family law? Uh, so I am very hopeful that this in some way will, will move us ahead because I think the specialized license is brilliant because remember, um, you know, it's important for everyone to keep in mind that it's not just a family law license. It's a general paralegal license with an additional specialization in family law. Right, right, um, right. So they would be able to practice in the other areas that paralegals can currently practice in. Right, and my research of those paralegals at the Workplace Safety and Insurance Appeals yes. Tribunal shows that I think it was well over nine, 75 to 90% practice almost exclusively. Right, so you uh, have- Well, over 75% and almost yes. as much as 90 that practice primarily or exclusively workplace safety and insurance right. matters right. and i suspect um that will be very much the same for those paralegals family who want paralegals to, yes. yeah go through and have a specialty yeah. in family law and julie you asked me you know what if it doesn't go through mm. <laughs> i'd like to say there will be a revolution <laughs> and, and, and you and i might be at the at the head of it but i i think there's a demand there's certainly yeah. a need as your research has shown yeah. over the years and you know here and in, in not just in ontario but elsewhere and you know, interesting enough, as you know, uh, in British Columbia, for example, they've yeah. been looking at the regulation. Yeah. And, but they're still struggling too. And their focus, again, is yeah. family law. Yeah. So, but they've not got there yet. I mean, this is what's oh, so interesting. It just feels like pushing this over the finish line. It's like they go around and around yes. and around and not just in BC. And so I just think if somebody takes the step, then maybe BC too will fall. Like, I just think... Right. We're so there's been so much in the last few years, and even since you, I'm sure, started doing your research yes. and work in this area, that I'm, I will be, I will actually be quite astounded as well as disappointed if if this doesn't go through. Well, let's end on that extremely optimistic and I hope <laughs> realistic right. note, Lisa. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been great. Thank you so much, Julie. My pleasure.
one of the things that stood out to me in your conversation was how much Lisa and you talked about specialization and that the key here is specialization into Mm. various areas of law, in this case, family law for paralegals. And I love that as Lisa points out, if this goes through regulating paralegals in Ontario to practice family law, coming with that will be these competencies and that they will be required to take additional training in family law to equip them to practice family law. And as she points out, effectively, at least in some cases, that will make them more qualified than (laughs) law emerging law students who do have no such um, expectation that they have. And I mean, as you know, family law is an elective course that you can take in law school, but it is not required. And it is not required that you have taken that course or those courses in order for you to practice family law. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, I mean, you know, in in reality, I think most people who practice family law as lawyers um, were interested in family law and they took that at law school and so forth. But I mean, Lisa makes a really good point that the requirement of specialization, which I agree, I think is, is, is really key. I mean, how often do we hear from people that they couldn't find a lawyer who had specialized knowledge in the area that they wanted. We hear that all the time at the project. So I think it's a really important way to think about, you know, future training to relate it to specialized competencies. But yes, it would be possible to be a family lawyer and not to have taken family law, but not to be a family paralegal, which is interesting. Now, you know, it, I have to make one other point here because this has been a real bugbear of mine now I for some time, which is, um, the apparent extinction of the family law professor in Canada. Now, you know, you might well say, well, they probably weren't very helpful anyway, but in fact, it's family law professors who have driven the research on family law and practice, who have often been the people pressing for change and for innovation. And without investment in faculty whose specialism is family law, that doesn't really happen. We have many wonderful adjunct professors teaching family law across Canada who are themselves practitioners. And you might think, well, surely that's the best. But the problem is that without this being recognized as a really important research area, without somebody who has a permanent position working on family law inside the academy, there is not anything like the same press and the same debate over innovations that we used to have. So at the University of Windsor Law School, uh, it's been more than 10 years now since we've had a faculty member teaching family law. And if you go across the country, you will see that there are very, very few law schools now who have a faculty member who teaches family law, which to my mind, given that this is the area that most Canadians are going to come across in the course of their lives, and in which we know there are the most people who are going without representation because they can't afford it. I think that suggests a bit of a bad disconnect between the way that we are structuring legal education and the academy and the needs of the public. Yes, absolutely. Well, another thing that we wanted to kind of point out from your conversation with Lisa, as, as the two of you talked about, was this issue of regulation around paralegals and you know where this seems to be headed is that the law society of ontario which regulates lawyers is self-regulating basically it's lawyers regulating themselves that that body will very likely be the body that also regulates paralegals and as lisa points out 
that could be a bit problematic because you've effectively got a, an organization that is self-regulating its members that would also be regulating effectively its competition. <laughs> so one could argue that there's a pretty big conflict of interest there. And it, it just, it doesn't sit well. And, you know, I really got that sense from Lisa that she feels like it's not, it doesn't sit well. And I know it doesn't sit yeah. well with you. It doesn't sit well with me either. The real problem is what's the alternative? I mean, you know, the alternative is going to be some kind of independent organization that will accredit and regulate um, paralegals much in the same way that the law society accredits and regulates itself. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is, you know, I think I don't think it's it's an issue that can't be dealt with, but I think mm -hmm. it needs to be raised explicitly yeah. and addressed. And you know, it's so interesting because we've heard from self reps over many years now that um, one of you know when we've asked them about how they might feel about paralegals, one of the things that people most often say, which you know might not be quite expected, is that they're not so worried about the competency of paralegals; they're more worried about the accountability if it is once again the law society who is you know acting as the regulator because many self-represented litigants have had very poor experiences with um what they see as the accountability of the law society for actions by its members um you know we've had lots of blogs on this um by the wonderful Anne Rempel and you know you can see that complaints from the public regularly do not get that far and there is a real concern that they wouldn't be responsive to complaints about paralegals if they now become the body that regulates complaints about paralegals so i mean i think these are both questions that are not necessarily fatal to the law society regulating paralegals as i say it's difficult to know who else at the moment but on the other hand i think at least the questions need to be raised and something needs to be said explicitly about you know how to ensure that there will be real accountability yeah. despite all of this uh you know one of the things that was was great about talking to lisa uh and you you talked about this too data was her optimism yeah she seemed and i find lisa's optimism infectious and i just you know she's so enthusiastic about her work and her research and yeah about and that's you know that doesn't mean to say that she's naive clearly she's not but i appreciate her optimism and when you asked her if she really seems to think that this will go through this time yes um we hope that it does. And of course, you pushed her and asked, you know, well, what if it doesn't? And she said, well, then perhaps a revolution. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I know that uh, I don't I don't want to bring too many shudders to people's spines by using the word revolution oh, gosh, too yes. often in this podcast. Um, but I think she makes a good point that people will be um, increasingly impatient if there isn't, you know, some movement here. And I did, uh, before we recorded this, check in um, with the Law Society and also looking at their webpage on the Family uh, Law Action Plan, which this paralegal regulation proposal is part of. And there is no further news, despite the fact that the consultations concluded at the end of November. But we um, you know, we're hopeful that the Access to Justice Committee, which is reviewing submissions, will um, come out with something shortly. And, you know, hopefully we won't still need a revolution. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Randy Drusen, and I'm here with a roundup of some news stories related to access to justice. 
We start in Windsor, where an Ontario Superior Court Justice recently denied a man interim custody of his kids because of his views on COVID-19. The man believes the pandemic is a hoax and he has bragged openly about ignoring restrictions such as masking and physical distancing. Justice George W. King determined that, because of these views, the man would not be able to keep his children safe during the pandemic. In his ruling, King concluded that the man's behavior is dictated by a particular worldview and that everything else, including his love for his children, is subordinate to that view. The man is now able to see his children three times a week at a supervised access center. To do that, he'll have to abide by that facility's virus-related restrictions. Some legal experts view this ruling as significant because it articulates new standards and language specific to COVID-19. In other news, in an advice column published recently in the Lawyer's Daily, a Saskatoon-based lawyer asked how she could scale back her law practice while still helping people with their legal problems. In response, Joanne Stark, founding president of the Legal Coaches Association, advised the lawyer to become a legal coach. That is, a lawyer who offers coaching sessions for a set fee to self-represented litigants and others doing their own legal work. Stark said legal coaches are popping up all over the country to help tens of thousands of people who are doing their own legal work because they can't afford full service representation or because they want to maintain control over their legal matters and finances. Stark said she regularly hears from middle class Canadians who are begging for affordable legal services. She also said these coaching sessions are not just affordable, but are also empowering for clients. Stark has written a book called Mastering the Art of Legal Coaching. She also recently wrote a blog post for the NSRLP. I'll end this episode with news from overseas. A British organization called Access to Justice Foundation is holding walks in locations across the UK in June to raise money for frontline legal services. Legal professionals and justice advocates walk five to 10 kilometers together in these events. The foundation describes them as the highlight of the Access to Justice calendar. More walks will be held in the fall. Laura Cassidy, the foundation's fundraising and development manager, says the COVID-19 pandemic has placed an incredible strain on advice services, which are now at the breaking point. She said that without these services, thousands of people across the UK will be unable to obtain justice. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower.